What if every song on the radio were the same? What if all of our music were the same key, the same subject, the same tempo? It would be boring, and we would stop listening. But God is not boring, and neither are His songs, which means we can come to Him in any and every emotional state we find ourselves in. Pastor Doug Logan says, God is worthy of praise, even on a bad day. He's good because of who He is. Feel the pain, trial, anguish, joy, celebration, and justice as we further understand what it means to know the God of the Bible. Let's marinate in the Psalms as this ancient poetry washes over us, refining us, changing us for His good. What a joy to learn there is no pretending in Christ. God allows us to weep, sing, shout, laugh, and even lament. Join us as we go deeper with God. Join us as we revel in His songs. Join us for these songs of freedom. we doing today? Doing good? Great great to be here with you today. Great to be in the air conditioning. Praise God for air conditioning. Uh, you may have noticed that my wife is not up here singing with us. I'm pretty proud of her as to why. Um, she's going to be teaching Zumba here at the school. Um, we've tried to figure out what are ways we can care for our community here with our specific talents. Um, and so the first thought is, well, we need to lead stuff, right? Because that's what we're, you know, that's what we're to do. And I think we've come to the point where we've realized that maybe um, she less needs to be the PTA president, which she is for now, and more needs to figure out ways she can serve um, the moms here on, on their terms. And so uh, some of the moms seem to really want to do Zumba. Uh, my wife has been told that she is really good at Zumba by her instructors, and so she is being trained in Los Angeles right now uh, in Zumba so that she can come here in this room uh, in a few weeks, really, and start teaching just like ways to stay in shape and be healthy for the moms here. So the moms will drop their kids off at school and then they'll, they'll do Zumba. So um, if you're going to come at me about how it's like shaking their butts and stuff, I just, it's exercise, okay. So we're going to talk about that. <laughs> so um, when I was nine, I went to my first Padre game. We had just moved to San Diego from Los Angeles and I was so excited to be there. I didn't really know what it was like to be there because my parents never took me to Chavez Ravine to see the Dodgers play. And so this was my first game. Um, and I remember going, and my grandpa brought me on the field because he was a, a, a writer. And I got to go, and I just remember being in awe. And I got to meet all these guys that almost no one here would know, like Bip Roberts um, and uh, Charlie White, not Charlie Whitehurst, Ed Ed Whitehurst, we got to see all these different players who, Ed Whitehurst, that's not a name, Ed, yeah, see, I don't even remember the players that I met, uh, Fred McGriff, maybe, that would be someone you'd know, but I remember walking out onto the field and feeling like I am in the presence of gods, 
I looked up to these men and they were humongous and their muscles were all full of steroids and they just looked huge to me and impressive. And here I was, this nine-year-old boy with like a homemade shirt that looks so weird and now I have all these pictures of me in that shirt. It was so terrible. It was one of those ones where you like, do you remember when they had the, like the puffy paint and then you would like spin it around? I have that shirt with all the Padre players. Um, um, Craig Lefferts, that was one of them. But I met them and I was just so in awe Um, I was in awe at the field. It was perfectly manicured. I was in awe at the players. And I was just, I was overwhelmed. In the same way, uh, Ashley and I, about uh, six years ago, went to uh, AT&T Stadium, which you guys may know as Cowboy Stadium in Dallas. And I remember walking in, and you guys remember, they have that huge screen, and we were going to see the team that I must not name now uh, play against the Cowboys. Um, they might have been from San Diego, but now they're traitors. But so I walked, I remember walking in, and it's, it's built to intimidate you. So you walk in, and it's almost like you're in the field already, and you're surrounded by this ginormous stadium. There's huge screens all around you, and it is intimidating. You walk in and you say, this is the house that Jerry Jones built. And it feels huge. And you feel small. In the same way, the first time I went to church, um, it was in a gym, not unlike a gym like this. And um, the songs sounded, uh, how do I say it nicely? Kind of 80s. Um, and it was in the late 90s. Um, but I felt the same sense of awe when I entered I felt uh, a presence that I hadn't known before. Um, I felt a, a, a friendship amongst the people and a connection amongst the people that I'd never felt before. Um, I don't think I sensed the same kind of grandeur that I felt um, on, in Jack Murphy Stadium or the same I felt in the Cowboy Stadium, but I felt something big happening. And I felt a buzz and I felt an excitement and I felt like there's something here and I want to know what it is. And and there was something about the saints gathered together, singing with reckless abandon about how their God is good. Whether it was an 80s sounding song or not, I found myself tapping my foot, wanting to sing along because I just thought, this is really cool. Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about that today. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 95. Uh, we have Bibles available in the back if you uh, don't have one. And of course, you can pull up the apps on your phone and um, check the scores. But we're going to be in Psalm 95. And I'm excited to read this to you this morning. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Did y'all want me to cut it off halfway there? I kind of did. Like when I first looked at it, it was like, I don't want to get to that second half. 
But I promise you, there's encouragement in there. And I hope that, uh, that you'll find it encouraging as well. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for today. We thank you uh, that probably in many ways, many of us represent the second half better than the first half. Stubborn, obstinate people. And for some reason, you decided that you loved us enough to do everything and anything it takes to put us into your family. Not only are you great, but you are compassionate. Would you show us compassion? God, would you show compassion for the people around us this morning who are suffering from depression, mental illness, addiction, despair, for those who are just tired, whose bones ache this morning? God, it's your nature to show affection to those in pain, and we ask for it today. For those suffering at home, at work or on the streets this morning who didn't make it this morning, Lord, have mercy on them. For us, would you reveal your grace to us in new, exciting ways. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to be in Psalm 95. Um, And uh, Psalm 95, a lot of times I like to give you as much background as I have. This is like a sentence of background that I have for you today. Well, most people don't know, and the only people that know are the ones who wrote it who are not alive anymore. So um, here's what we know about Psalm 95. A lot of people think it was for the rededication of the temple, um, but nobody really knows. So there is your context for Psalm 95. That is, after reading all my books, that's our context. (laughs) Some people think maybe it's this. But one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it's not only compelling us to worship, but it's telling us why we should worship. It doesn't tell us to shut off our brains when we come to God. The author is saying, worship God, let me tell you why. There are so many reasons. You don't have to shut off your brain to be a Christian, friends. Read books, learn, and then when people challenge you, when science offers you some evidence of something, when science shows you something, you can say to them, well, maybe that's how God did it. It shouldn't bother us. It shouldn't scare us. We should be able to say, hey, if this is what's going on, God is in it. And that's fine with us. And so um, with that being said, I'm going to give you three reasons today to worship God. Three reasons to give God worship. And uh, our first reason is that we worship God because he is a good shepherd worth getting excited about. He is a good shepherd worth getting excited about. Uh, Verse 1, it says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Now, I just want to stop here just for a moment before I continue. And I just want you to remember what was said here. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. Now, some would say this is just referring to like a cave where you would find safety. But I don't believe that's what this is about because we have a really good context here. Um, So, uh, I just want to remind you about this, and we'll come back to it. Is that cool? Can we remember? Rock of our salvation? We'll come back to it. Verse 2. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. Come, let us worship and bow down before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Now the psalmist is saying here, friends, come worship God and physically act out your faith. God, a faith in God is anything but boring. One commentator says, the text is saying, to express our exhilaration at being in the presence of God. So we shout joyfully, we shout triumphantly. This means we shout to God. There should be moments when we realize how rad he is, right? And that we can't hold it all in. If you spend 10 minutes at my house, we have dance parties when we find that little Amazon remote Okay, that little fire stick remote, it's like this big, and we will have parties when we find it. 
because we lose it all the time. And we will shout joyfully. Now, I know some of you guys are maybe not as loud as my family. And if you've been to my, fam- my family's house, you would know we're kind of loud. For us, shouting is normal. And if, That's right, girl. So if you're an introvert, then this might weird you out, though. But if you consider yourself a mature Christian, um, we're always aware of who's around us when we shout because we don't want to freak people out. And so sometimes the Bible will talk about the way we enter into worship. We want to be careful that we don't just shout all the time and scare people away. But at the same time, we want to be clear that we love our God and he is worth being excited about. So Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, people are impressed with the idea that they ought to be serious, that they put on the aspect of misery and quite forget that joy is as much a characteristic of true worship as solemnity itself. And so what he's saying here is that we have to be careful to be balanced. Um, We don't want to be fake, right? You don't want to come to church and be fake and just have to put on this performance that we're just going to shout and scream all the time. But we also don't want to be someone who's fake and pretends that we have to be serious all the time. When our God is a God of joy and like we find jokes in the Bible, I kind of think like he's kind of cool with that sort of attitude, right? He's saying that if you think church should only be sad and serious, then you don't understand church and you don't understand God because he has a great streak in him of joy. Now, the text also says to sing to him. Now, I got some people in the room that I bet you hate singing out loud. And I I want you to see, is this a command for you? That's the question. Is this a command for you, person who doesn't like singing, person who maybe has problems with your throat? Probably not. Um, It may be a command for you to sing at some point, though, okay? Can we say that? Um, I do hope, maybe, maybe, when you are in your car, and you are stuck in traffic on the 5, the 805, the 8, that there can be an appropriate time for you, if you feel like you just can't sing around people, to let loose and worship God. And you got the windows. You're good. But I will also tell you, some of my favorite moments of worship have been around people who cannot sing a dang tune for their life. And so if you're one of those people who feel like, I can't sing, I sound awful, I can tell you it has been beautiful when I've been around friends who sing with reckless abandon even when they're off. So just my encouragement to you. Um, Next it says uh, to bow down and kneel. Now all I'm going to say about this is this is about a willingness to show that you are not the main point. This is showing humility To bow is to show reverence to a king, right? A willingness to see, to be seen as lower than your king. When we bow in worship, when we bow in prayer, um, I'm just going to say it is an act of humility, especially in 2018, because when you bow in worship, someone's going to look at you weird. And we have to be okay with that. When I think about this infectious joy that we have for the Lord, I think about the movie Elf. I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Elf, but when when Will Ferrell's character sees Santa, when Will Ferrell's character sees gum underneath something where he can pull it out and eat it, when he sees anything that could give him any sort of joy, he has that beautiful, infectious joy that seems to affect everyone around him. I think we're more, um, I think it would be better if we were more like that than the sour people who seem to know everything about everything. What if we were more joyful like kids in the way we worship God? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Now, let me give you an example from the Bible because Elf is not uh, quite the scriptures. There was a time when King David had recently become king of Israel in place of Saul. When the Philistines heard about this new king, they decided it was a good time. This would be the right time to wipe Israel off the map. 
However, God gave King David a decisive military victory, and David wanted to give God appropriate glory. But David ended up dancing in front of the ark of God, which was known to like be God's presence, right? So they're going through the streets and he's got 30,000 people around him coming, his soldiers coming with him to celebrate and he starts to get down, right? And I can't dance. That's why my wife said Zumba, not me. And so he starts to dance and he starts to celebrate to God and he doesn't care who's watching. He is celebrating God in that moment. And what does he do? He ends up kind of, you know, pulling off some of his clothes because if, if you're like David, if you're like me, you, you don't want to be wearing all this extra clothing when you're dancing around in the hot sun. And so David disrobes a little bit. He doesn't get naked. He still have, has clothes on. Um, he has his linen ephod on. Uh, but he is embarrassing himself. Let's read in um, 2 Samuel 6, 14. This is what happens. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michelle, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now let's also just point out that her dad was Saul, right? The last king. So she's already probably got like a little bit against her own husband at this point. Then down to verse 20, 2 Samuel 6, 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter, Michelle, came out to meet him. How the king of Israel has honored himself today, she said. I can't do that sarcastic enough. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michelle, It was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will dance before the Lord, and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michelle, had no child to the day of her death. That's a little, like, point that God adds in. Like, I guess she had some problems after that. But here's the thing. David is saying, what do I care about what people think about me? God has saved my life. God has protected the people of Israel through a decisive military victory. And his presence is with us and blessing us. And I have to be embarrassed about how I look. Like, what does that have to do with anything? And so he says, I will humble myself. I will be even more undignified than this if it comes to praising my God. So what that means, friends, is there are times when we are going to look dumb for worshiping and following God. And I'm here to tell you that that is okay. It's okay to look silly. It's okay to feel dumb a little bit so long as you more and more grow in your understanding that it is God who cares about you. And friends, if you live in San Diego, to be here is to look dumb to people. Let's just be clear about that, right? To be here, to say this is more important than other things that you could be doing right now, to say that you believe in a God is silly, and embarrassing and humbling to some people, but it's not to us, right? So David made himself weak. David was undignified. And don't tell me that some of you men haven't looked this way when your team won a big game. I mean, we're willing to be undignified when it comes to to our teams winning. Now, I wouldn't know so much because I cheer for San Diego teams, but those of you who cheer for other teams, you have been undignified at times. David was humbled and he was dishonored. Perhaps it's not the worst thing that we need, church, that we show that we have a weakness, Perhaps it's not the worst thing to show that we need to depend upon each other. 
For them to see us needing God and needing each other may not make us look powerful to some, but our dependence on God is a truly beautiful thing. Now, our second reason to give God glory is this. No God compares to our powerful, creative God. No God compares to our powerful, creative God. There is no one like our God. Uh, Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God, a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. There is no one like our God, friends. Now, if you were in Israel at this time, some would have seen your religion as more of an underdog. You were like the Cleveland Browns of religions. Nobody respected you. I guess I could say the Padres at the moment. Many at the time would see Yahweh as a regional God. They would say, that's the God of Israel. In that little tiny place, that's Israel's God. That doesn't affect any of us. And here we see that... um, that God is not just for those weirdo Jews, not just for those weirdo Christians. It's much like we may feel here in Dago, like perhaps the God, of all, like the God we worship does not seem very big to many people in our community right now. There are many other gods in our community, money, success, things like that, that people would say those are the real things to worship. But the psalmist speaks of the size and utter creativity of God and glory of our God. This is no regional, local God. This is it. God is bigger than the imagination of those who do not know him. In verse 4, it says, The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. Now, I did a little research on the depths and the heights because uh, I like to do research. So, um, these things can show us how unique and creative God is. First off, the lowest point on land is the Dead Sea, which our friend Eve just got back from. The Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level. That's the lowest point on land. Now, But there's a a lower point than that, right? The lowest point on earth overall is Challenger Deep at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is 36,201 feet below sea level. That is 6.8 miles deep. That's taller than Mount Everest. That goes deeper than Mount Everest is high. Now, the highest point on the planet is Mount Everest, which is uh, 29,000 feet, about five and a half miles high. So you have a difference between Uh, 12 miles up and down on the world. How cool is that God, huh? God is the God of trenches. God is the God of heights. The depths of the earth are in his hands and the mountain peaks are his. But in our own hubris, in our own arrogance, we think we can become like God. We think we can conquer God or even the things that he's created. We scale the biggest peaks like Mount Everest, don't we? Not we. Like, I don't know if anybody here. Probably not. It's extremely dangerous, right? Like, Many people who climb Mount Everest, they die. Matter of fact, when they die, their bodies stay there forever because it's too hard for us to get up and bring their bodies down. There are about 200 bodies on Mount Everest right now, on the way. People walk up the paths and they know that there's people there, people there, people there. They have nicknames for them. But, it, but we think that we can conquer what God has created, right? Right? Didn't work out for everyone. Now, famous climber Seaborn Beck Weathers, who has climbed Everest, says this. If you don't have anyone who cares about you or is dependent on you, if you have no friends or colleagues, and if you're willing to put a single round in the chamber of a revolver and put it in your mouth and pull the trigger, then yeah, it's a pretty good idea to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> so that's, that's the advice someone who's climbed Mount Everest has seen. 
because he is not a regional God, is he? He's a big God that has created the highest of peaks. Maybe just for a second, let's talk about the second highest peak. It's called K2. K2 is worse than Mount Everest for climbing. You don't hike K2. Um, You scale K2. All the while, there are avalanches. There's thin air that makes it very hard to breathe if you don't have extra air. There are boulders, they say, the size of microwaves constantly falling. And if one hits you, that's it. Now, you you may not like see that in full perspective, but let's put it this way. Let me tell you this fact. It's crazy. Okay, we're talking about experienced climbers who climb K2, right? One out of four dies. Experienced climbers, one out of four dies. In our arrogance, we think, I can conquer what God has made, and yet few make it home. Our God is a big God. Our God is a gracious God. Our God is a creative God, but he is also a, a, a scary God in what he's created. One out of every four. Helicopters can't go up there. They can't handle the thin air. So you can't even rescue someone if they're in danger. Friends, our God is a God who's created the seas, the mountain peaks, but too often we find ourselves bored in him. When we go to worship, we're bored. How is that? There's nothing to be bored with. If you're bored with God, you don't know him well enough. This same God created the grizzly bear, the great white shark, the king cobra. He created 70-foot ocean waves in Nazare, Portugal. That is the God we worship. Our boring God created the dinosaurs, the Argentinosaurus. I can't even say this. Huculensis was the, the largest. It was 115 feet in length and 85 to 110 tons in weight. Our God created that. We should worship him. Now, blue whales, which still exist today, are about 200 tons. That's about 400,000 pounds. Um, That's a lot. A blue whale's heart weighs more than a car. Um, Its tongue weighs as much as an elephant. So this is the God we worship that's created these things. And sometimes we think, man, he's kind of boring. But he is big, powerful, and creative, and worth our worship, and worth our time. The God we worship will never be boring, and it's okay to worship him with a little humility. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. The fact that we even have abstract thought is a sign of the glory of God. He is amazing that he has given you a brain with a cerebrum, a cerebellum, and a brainstem. The God we worship has made parts of your brains for daily function, rational thought, spiritual thought, sensual thought, even a portion that controls instant response to pain. Yes, we worship a creative God. Now, I've been in sermons where the guys just start getting to cellular level. I'm going to stop here. But I'm just saying that our God is creative, he's good, and there's no comparing with what he has done. The God we worship is creative. So our God should be worshiped because he's a good shepherd. There's no comparing with him. He's not boring. And finally, we should worship God because he is just and gracious. He is just and gracious. Now, he gives us warning when we disobey, and we still find him giving us grace. Now, I'm going to read to you the confusing part in verse 8. Excuse me. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray, and they do not know my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. That's crazy, right? That's like in the middle of like this, like, God's so good, he's so great. Don't do this. It doesn't fit, does it? 
Like, maybe it does. Well, let's see how it fits. Let's see where it fits in. Now, there are two historical accounts in the Bible about Meribah and Massah, okay? And I'd love to talk to you about them right now. In Exodus 17, Israel complains that they are thirsty and Egypt was better. Now, we remember, right, that God has redeemed Israel from Egypt, right? They were slaves to the Pharaoh, building and building until they died. The, the pyramids were being built upon their backs. And here they are freed. God parts the seas. They walk through it. Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up. And here they are. They have been, they have been given this opportunity to go into God's promised land. So they go to the promised land, right? And they have all these spies go in. And then they see what is in where they want to stay. And what is it? It's giants. They see people that they could never conquer. And so what do they do? They say, you know what? We're going to leave this. We don't want to be here. We're going to leave. But God's like, hey, hey, but um, remember, I will conquer them. You will just walk in with them, right? You will just take them down because I want you here in this land flowing with milk and honey. And they say, "Mm, uh, we don't trust God enough to go in. So they leave. They leave. The crazy thing is before they got there, um, they had an opportunity. And, and we'll talk about that in Numbers 20. Now, they find themselves rejecting what God wants for them and returning back the way they came. And they find themselves at a dry, hot, dusty, dirty land. Again, for the second time. It's like passing through Barstow on your road trip out of San Diego Like, you go through Barstow, and you're like, oh, look, there's Barstow. Let's go to Barstow, because we need to use the restroom. And um, so you go to Barstow, and then you find out, once you're in Barstow, that gas is $5 a gallon. It's 111 degrees. So you say, let's go to the Starbucks, right? But there's 71 people in Starbucks. And you try to use the bathroom in Starbucks, but there's 12 people in line. And inside the Starbucks, it's like 108 degrees anyway. And you're like, what am I doing here in Barstow? We should have just kept going and not gone to Barstow. Well, in the same way, they had been in their own Barstow. And in that time, before they reached the promised land, something happened. They were thirsty. And God said to Moses, strike the rock and water will come. And what happened? Water came. So then they go to Israel, which would be modern-day Israel, And then they reject what God has told them, and they leave. And they find themselves, what? Back in Barstow, which is, sorry, is Meribah. That's what its name. Um, They find themselves back there. And the funny thing is, in kind of the same way, we may find ourselves coming home on a road trip, and uh, we'll kind of be like, hey, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom soon. Where are we going to stop? And we're like, oh, it's been a few weeks. Let's go to Barstow, right? We forget really quickly, right? And so we go to Barstow, and we go through the same thing again, and we're like, what are we doing here? In the same way, after Israel had rejected God and rejected the gift of this land for God, they found themselves back in Meribah, complaining again to God, complaining to Moses. And they were saying to Moses, really, are we here again? Why did you bring us here? Why didn't you let us be in Egypt where we could have been slaves, but we would at least been fed? Like, if we could have received food in Egypt, we would at least be alive, even though we were slaves. And Moses is like, dude, you are my last nerve. Again, the same argument. Again, grumbling, complaining over and over again. Like, don't you remember that God even gave you water here before? But they're they're not interested in that. They're interested in complaining about God. They're interested in complaining about Moses. They're interested in complaining about everything that God has done for them. So they get there, and Moses goes to God, and God says, hey, just speak to the rock, 
you'll get some water. Just tell the rock to get some water. Now, <clears throat> I can imagine it's kind of like a bad magician, right? Like a bad magician's like, presto! This is going to change in just a minute, okay? Presto! And then nothing happens, right? So Moses speaks to the rock one time, and what happens? Nothing. So you can see, you can imagine, Moses is starting to be like, oh, okay, God told me, okay, so I all these people complaining at me right here, and they are complaining, like fierce complaining. I'm sick of their stuff. And then here's the rock, and Moses is like, come on. It's like, it's like kicking an old car, you know, trying to get it to start. So what does Moses do? He's like, okay, I, I think God misspoke to me. God must have not understood, because I remember before God told me to strike the rock. So Moses strikes the rock, and out comes water. But God's like, that's not what I told you to do, man. I told you to speak. And so what you have here is you have the Israelites not listening to God, not trusting God. He brings them to where they are at, even though they didn't trust him, and they don't trust him again. And they say, these are giants, we're not entering. So then they come back to Barstow, Meribah. They come back to Meribah, and what happens? They don't trust him again. They're like, really, you brought us here? We're just going to die in the desert? And so God is like, mm. speak to the rock. So then Moses, his speaker, Moses, is like, yeah, I'll just strike it. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm just going to kick the car, even though he said it would start. You have all of these people who God loves, who God provides for, who God takes through every single season of their life, and they still don't trust him. Why, why don't they trust him? I don't know. But I do know that we are a little bit like that. <laughs> remember what the author, though, called God in verse 1? Do we remember what I said? Anyone see in verse 1? What did God call? What did they call God in verse 1? The rock of our salvation. That's not a coincidence. He's rock steady, right? A rock is sturdy. You can build your home on a rock but it's swept away on the sand. But this rock also is a trustworthy rock that will provide the water needed for them, and they were unwilling to trust him. At that point, it seems that no one trusted the rock, even his main man, Moses. I think in San Diego, sometimes we feel like that. It feels like people tell you, put your trust in this, 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 this. And for your kids, put your trust in this, 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 and this. And if you don't do this for your kids, if you don't do this for your retirement, if you don't do this, then you don't, you're, you're going to fail. If you use money for the poor, that's not smart. If you even come to a worship service, you're telling people that you trust in a God, and people are going to look at you like you're weird. Now, Michael Wilcock, he says this about this situation. He says, God is speaking to you now, today as he was then. You are as likely as your forebears were to harden your hearts and refuse to listen. It is entirely possible for God to be disgusted with you as he was with them. We tend to look at Israel, right? And we say, if I saw the parting of the Red, water, or of the red Sea, then I would be quite different. But friends, I think if we were to examine our lives, if we were to just make a journal of all the times we've seen God do miracles, I think many people in Israel would be jealous of what we've seen. We have to look inward and see some of this rebellion in our heart is a deception that we're deceiving ourselves to think we're any different than Israel was. We tend to make fun of Israel because they were acting like a bunch of turkeys. But for some of us, we wake up and we think, maybe when I wasn't a believer, it was better. 
Maybe if I weren't a believer, it would be easier. Because then I wouldn't have to worry about this God who just nags me all the time. Now we know that that's not the way he is. He's a loving, caring God. But we usually don't remember the hard stuff, do we? We don't remember the hangovers. We forget the loneliness. We forget how we would wake up feeling like crap, feeling hopeless. We almost always forget the striving to make a life of consequences without God and how, how much it is like grasping at the air. All we remember is, it's better back then in Egypt when I was in slavery. Don't we do that? It's just, it was so much better because I, I could run the show. And God here is saying, how has that been working, Israel? How has it been working when you're running the show? Like, is that what you want? You want to hang out in the desert? Cool. You know what? He is still gracious, though, because he still provides water. Isn't that awesome? And so if you find yourself questioning him, if you find yourself saying, I don't know if you're worth my time, God. If you find yourself saying, you know what? I'm just, I don't even want to follow you. He, he provides water. Isn't he so good? Isn't he so gracious? Now, one of the cool things is um, we get to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And Hebrews 3 12 through 19, actually interprets this verse for us. So I'm going to go to it. Hebrews 3, 12 through 19. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, uh, Hebrews 4, 1 through 2, I'll just give you this real fast. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we have also received the good news just as they did. What he's saying is, you are no different from Israel. You guys are just as stubborn. Us guys are just as stubborn. Just as easily we wake up and say, God, what have you done for me lately? Did you really do that? When we saw that person healed, when we saw that miracle happen, when I felt like I was going to struggle with my payment and somehow the exact amount showed up that I needed at the moment, when I had all these things, when I needed a job and I went to you, when I needed a healing and I came to you, when I needed this and I came to you, was that all fake? Are we Israel? Gosh dang it, we're just like them, aren't we? If you're the only one who has wandered in the desert, going on your own way though, Perhaps today's the day you trust God. You see, we were all in debt to God. We were all in slavery, but God was willing to do something about it. We call this the gospel, friends. That he saw our debt, the things that we owed, and it was a debt that we could never pay. There's nothing we could do to pay him back. It was our sin and our anger and our pain that we, we, we thrust upon others and him. And he said that he loved us still. And so he sent his son to die on the cross and live a perfect life and die on the cross as our final payment. Jesus Christ conquered sin and death, rose again on our behalf, 
and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And friends, because of him, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we can be saved. And I'm not saying you won't at times feel like you're still wandering in the desert, but I can promise you that he is watching over you. He is present, and he offers you a family, and that's his church. If you follow God, people will mock you. If you make him a priority over the things that this city makes a priority, people will mock you. Giving God priority over every part of your life, you will be mocked. Chucking off your clothes when you worship God? Yeah, you're going to be mocked, but I'm going to mock you too, and we're going to have security or something, like, escort you out. But here's the other thing. This is the hardest one. Your thoughts will mock you. Your thoughts will will mock you. They will make fun of you because you are a broken person, unwilling to trust at times because, let's be honest, friends, we have been let down by people so many times. And it's so hard to look to God and say, you know what, okay, I'm just going to totally trust you. But when we trust him, he is good to his word. Ultimately, the world will tell you of all the things more important than following God, but when you are sitting on your deathbed, none of those things will matter. How you or your kids did in sports or school will pale in comparison to their relationship with Jesus. The amount of money you made, the amount of power you had, or even the amount of fun you had, that stuff won't matter if you did it without living a life of worship. Let me close with this. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Friends, no one is going to tell you this is easy. No one is going to tell you this is easy. But if you feel like you're wandering in the desert, if you feel like you're struggling through this, if you feel like, you know what, I would much rather try and just walk with what the world is telling me to do, I want you to know that no matter what, God is present in the middle of it. God is here, and he's urging you for something better. And he loves you, and he cares for you. Would you pray with me? God, we, uh, we are so thankful for who you are, that our worship is not dependent on our goodness. And God, our worship seems to even uh, not be dependent on our memory because our memory is so dang bad that when we look to the things you've done, God, we look at them for a moment and we turn our eyes to something shiny. We turn our eyes to something new. We, we find something else to worship. God, we ask that you would transform us, that you would renew our hearts and make us people who worship you in spirit and in truth. And in every way, we would become more and more like your son, Jesus. God, we know that you want that for us um, because it gives you glory, but you also want it for us because you want a better way for us to experience as well. So God, in this moment now, um, we bring you our sins, the places where we have doubted you, the places where we have been scared and unwilling to trust you, the places where we have said, it worked this way before, so I'm going to do it my way. And we confess them silently to you in this moment.
God, we thank you that you allow us to come back to you again and again and again after we doubt you, after we try to do everything in our own strength, as we try to parent in our own strength, as we try and make bills only in our own strength without even praying to you, as we try to get out of our addictions without spending any time with you on it, as we forget all the good you've done and we think, I just got this myself. God, would you stir in our hearts something greater? God, would this season be a season where even if we're walking through the most dry desert plain, that we would know that your water is available, that we would sense your presence, that we would feel the power that you give for healing, for comfort, for joy. And God, when we find ourselves in true worship, following you, pressing forward, when the world tells us we are, I don't know, a little off in our priorities, God, would you help us to look and see what your priorities are first? And God, would you just help us with that? Because we're weak and we're more like the Israelites than we would like to confess at times. God, we thank you and we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.